0: Plus. Welcome to True Crime by Indie Drop-In. Each week we feature an episode from the best independent creators. Hit subscribe for more great true crime content. If you would like to support Indie Drop-In and get these episodes ad-free, check out our Patreon at the bottom of the show notes. Today's episode is from 10 Minute Murder. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to subscribe and follow on social media. Enjoy the show. Begin. 10-minute murder contains depictions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to 10 Minute Murder, the brief and bingeable podcast for people with stuff to do. I'm Joe, and I appreciate you being here. Make sure we're connected on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for 10 Minute Murder. It's pretty simple to find, and that is the best way to get in touch with me if you have a story that you think I should take a look at. Also, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, first of all, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but it's obviously not cool things. But go ahead and subscribe to the podcast right now, and that ensures that you won't miss any episodes in the future. And today, the story is sad, completely crazy, and brutal. And I know you heard the warning at the start, but this is going to be unlike any that I've told before. And if you're like me, you'll be randomly thinking about it for days. It's a story about a family cult, vampire Jesus, and the murder of nine people by Marcus Wesson. March 12, 2004. Officers are called to a rundown office building on West Hammond Avenue in Fresno, California. A full-blown custody argument is in progress. Police see hundreds of domestic calls a day in nearly every city in the country, so it's nothing new. But every case is a little bit different. On this call, officers speak to Sofina Solorio and Ruby Ortiz, They say that their children are being held inside by their uncle, Marcus Wesson, and he's going to hurt them. Their panic is only amplified by the other family members that have gathered around them. They seem to know something that the police don't know. Trying to resolve the situation, police knock on the door to the sketchy office building where they are apparently living. Wesson comes to the door, and they see a huge man, gray dreadlocks to his waist but he's very calm and polite with police. After some conversation at the door, he agrees to turn over the children, but he wants to say goodbye to them first and ask police to wait a minute. He shuts the door. Moments later, gunshots from inside. But let's rewind and explain how we got here. Marcus Wesson is the oldest of four children that grew up in a very religious home. They were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church well, his mother was the one pushing the religion. His father was an alcoholic abuser that abandoned the family to live with another man. And his mom did occasionally beat the children with an electrical cord. After dropping out of high school, Wesson joined the army. He traveled the world and eventually moved to California where he met Rosemary Solario. She was married at the time and 13 years older than Marcus. But she forced her husband out and moved Wesson in with her and her children. In 1971, she gave birth to Wesson's son. At that same time though, Wesson was moving in on one of Rosemary's daughters, Elizabeth. He told her that God had chosen her to be his bride. Elizabeth, by the way, was eight years old. They had a home wedding ceremony. By the time she was 12, he began sexually abusing her. At 14, she had his baby. At 15, they were legally married. Over the years, Marcus and Elizabeth would have a total of 10 children together. Another of Rosemary's daughters said that she was unable to care for her children, so she left them with Wesson, all seven of them. After leaving the army years before, Wesson had never held a steady job. Instead, he lived off of welfare and forced his adult children that worked to give him all their paychecks. The massive family often squatted in vacant houses, offices, boats, shacks, tents, any place they could find. Marcus Wesson kept traits from both his mother and his father. He was abusive to the kids, like his father, and very religious, like his mother. But he took both of those to another level. He homeschooled all of the kids, teaching them from his own handwritten Bible. In this Bible he had written, Jesus was a vampire. So I guess you could say he was taking some creative liberty with the King James Version. He made them all call him Master or Lord, telling his female children that they were destined to be his wives. The boys he kept separated, fearing that they would develop sexual feelings for their sisters. Wesson would go on to abuse two daughters and three nieces, marrying each one in a home ceremony when they were between the ages of seven to nine years old. Each of the five girls became pregnant. The mothers of these children claimed to be threatened by Wesson if they disclosed the true paternity. In total, Marcus Wesson fathered 18 children with seven women and children, including his daughters. The whole family was forbidden to have regular contact with the outside world because Wesson said it was full of sin. If one of the women were caught talking to another man outside of the house, she would be severely punished. He also had a weird fascination with fellow cult leader, David Koresh. He related to him, saying, This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord. And like Koresh, he had a suicide pact with his family. If anyone tried to take or split up his family, the mothers were instructed to kill their children and then themselves. They'd have monthly family meetings to discuss this plan. Now, back to March of 2004, where police were on the doorstep of this office building. Wesson had previously told his daughters that he was planning to move to Washington state, and somehow the prospect of him leaving is what made his two nieces and several other family members rebel against him, not the rapes and the other abuse. Wesson didn't come back to the door, police didn't have a warrant to enter, and they claimed to not hear the gunshots that the neighbors say they heard from the inside. So they wait. Almost two hours later, Marcus Wesson comes to the door covered in blood. Officers take him into custody. He's so big that they needed three sets of handcuffs and they rush inside. It's quiet, very dark inside, but they do see against one wall ten coffins stacked up. They were hand-carved coffins made with rich wood and larger than ordinary caskets. Police move on through and they discover in another dark room the bloody bodies piled up of his family. One adult and the rest children. All had been shot through the eye. It took hours to untangle and determine who and how many victims Wesson left. In all, nine were murdered, ranging in ages from one to 25. Officers on the scene that day were so traumatized by what they saw that many of them had to seek counseling it's considered the worst mass murder in the history of Fresno. A year later, Marcus Wesson would stand trial. He appeared to be almost a different person. He no longer had a harem of women and children to take care of his every need, and no longer had access to fast food that he loved to eat so much, while the rest of the family got by on rice and scraps from the dumpster. He had lost nearly half of his weight. His long gray dreadlocks that were down to his waist were cut short. Marcus was charged with nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of rape and molestation. Living family members testified, some of them still loyal to him. They testified in his defense. Wesson's defense was to claim that he didn't kill anyone, that 25-year-old Sabrina, his oldest murder victim that day, had murdered them all and then turned the gun on herself. The evidence was inconclusive, as there were no fingerprints found on the gun, her body was on top of all the others, and the murder weapon, a 22 caliber Ruger, was found underneath her. It's not known if she fell or was placed there. Ultimately, it didn't matter who actually pulled the trigger that day. He had either fired the shots himself or forced them into a family suicide pact. In June 2005, he was sentenced to 102 years for the rape and molestation charges, and for the murder conviction, the death penalty. The governor of California later signed a moratorium on the death penalty. So now he's in San Quentin prison for the rest of his life, rubbing elbows with other murderers like Scott Peterson, Lonnie Franklin, the grim sleeper, and Rodney Acala, the dating game killer. Several of his sons made statements after that Wesson was the best dad you could ever have and did nothing wrong. Much later, they had years to reflect, decided that he was a manipulative monster all along. That's today's 10 Minute Murder. If you've never heard of this story, it's not surprising. This happened during a time when the country was fixated on Scott Peterson's murder of his wife and unborn son. People were talking about his affair with Amber Fry and whether or not he had had anything to do with Lacey's disappearance and death. And outside of California, not many people paid attention to Marcus Wesson and his grisly murder of his family. Thank you for listening to 10 Minute Murder, the brief and bingeable podcast for people with stuff to do. If you want to help out with the podcast, you can leave a five star review if you listen on Apple podcasts or tell your friends about 10 Minute Murder if they like creepy things like you do. Have a good night.
0: Hello, Indie Drop-In fans. Before you hit stop, I know you're probably all in shock after that amazing episode from 10-Minute Murder, but I wanted to remind you that Indie Drop-In has two other shows, Scary Time and Comedy, that I think you will really love. You should check those out. I will put those links in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In. If you would like your show featured, reach out to us at Indie Drop-In on all social media or go to IndieDropIn.com. See you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a
1: fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver?